Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Kate Merriweather, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a 63-year-old woman with fecal incontinence. We're going to be going over the differential diagnosis of fecal incontinence, as well as the management of this very burdensome disorder. I'm Dr. Kate Merriweather, editor for the OBGYN Beyond the Pearls book series, and you can tweet at me at KateMerriweather1. Today, we're going to be talking about a 63-year-old woman with fecal incontinence, For those of you who are following along in the OBGYN Beyond the Pearls book, this is case 64 on page 415. It was written by Jennifer C. Thompson and Dr. Jenna Donovan, uh, both MDs at the University of New Mexico Division of Urogynecology, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So let's go to our patient. She's a 63-year-old G3P3 who presents with complaints of leakage of stool gradually worsening over five years. This is her first evaluation because she's highly embarrassed by this problem. She feels uncomfortable going on trips for fear of leaking stool or for foul odor. So why is it important to ask about fecal incontinence in women? And for that matter, why or why did I pick fecal incontinence out of all the OBGYN topics that are out there? Well, because fecal incontinence is really common in women and it severely affects their quality of life. FI or fecal incontinence is defined as accidental loss of stool. Anal incontinence, or AI, includes the loss of both stool and or flatus. The prevalence of FI ranges from 7 to 15%, but it's likely underestimated due to the embarrassment and patient fear of discussing this condition, just like this woman's experiencing. The effects on women's quality of life are significant and include emotional, social, and financial stress. Due to the unclear prevalence, limited self-disclosure rates, and strong impact on quality of life, healthcare providers should be proactive about screening women for FI. Most patients are highly ashamed and discouraged due to stool leakage, like this patient. So be empathic, use clear language, and emphasize that the problem is common and that it's treatable. So when a woman presents with FI, what should you ask about her history? So the differential diagnosis for FI is really broad. We'll get to that in a minute. A really comprehensive history should be obtained. So frequency, timing, and consistency of bowel movements, associated symptoms like abdominal pain or bloating, 
incomplete emptying of the bowels, use of digital maneuvers like placing a finger in the vagina or the rectum to facilitate bowel movements, the mnemonic old carts, O-L-D-C-A-R-T-S, onset, location, duration, character, aggravating factors, relieving factors, timing, and severity can help to guide your history. I love old carts. I find it so helpful. So let's talk a little bit about the differential diagnosis of fecal incontinence while we're here. There's anatomic causes, so childbirth injury being number one on that list. A fistula, so an abnormal connection between the rectum or the bowels and other openings like the vagina or the urine. Rectal prolapse, so protrusion of the rectum to or through the anal opening. And surgery or trauma. There's also skeletal muscle disease like myasthenia gravis or myopathies that can affect the ability to control stool. There's smooth muscle dysfunction, so fecal impaction or scleroderma. There's neurologic disease like strokes in the central neurological system, spinal cord issues such as multiple sclerosis, and peripheral neurological disorders like cauda equina, diabetes mellitus, and then there's miscellaneous things that upset the bowel balance, such as irritable bowel syndrome, severe diarrhea, and medications. And there's a whole slew of them that can affect and cause fecal incontinence, like antacids, broad-spectrum antibiotics, proton pump inhibitors, diabetic medications, antidepressants, prostaglandins, and laxatives. And what you're probably noticing that most of these have in common is that they cause loose or urgent stools, classically called diarrhea in the colloquial make it very hard to control bowel movements. So specific events prior to the onset of FI, such as a recent birth or pelvic trauma or surgery, can narrow the differential a lot. The patient's history of screening for colorectal cancer, such as a past colonoscopy, should be discussed and screening should be done if it's not up to date. In this case of an adult patient, they haven't had a full colonoscopy within the last 10 years, for example, should have up-to-date screening done now. So let's go back to our patient now that we've asked her these questions. She describes leaking soft stool about two times each week. The leaking is worse with diarrhea, especially after eating spicy food. She leaks when she has the sudden urge to defecate and cannot make it to the bathroom in time. So what's the role of an obstetric history when evaluating a woman with fecal incontinence? Remember, we talked in the differential about how pregnancy, labor, and delivery all contribute to the development of FI. In particular, obstetric anal sphincter injury, called OASI, is an important risk factor. Multiparity, operative vaginal delivery, so forceps or vacuum, episiotomy, and fetal macrosomia contribute to the risk of OASI. While some women notice an immediate change in bowel function after they have an injury of this kind, other women develop problems years later due to loss of compensariate mechanisms over time. So it might not set on right away. In addition to obstetrical injuries, what are some other risk factors associated with FI? So we talked about them in the differential. Other risk factors for FI are age, smoking, chronic diarrhea, of course, previous anal rectal surgery, obesity, interestingly, urinary incontinence, they often travel together, urinary and fecal incontinence, neurological disease, which we discussed earlier, increased frequency of bowel movements, and fecal urgency. So our patient has fecal urgency, for example. A thorough history helps the practitioner to understand the problem. So let's talk about our patient's history. She reports that she has a history of hypertension. She in the surgical history has a bilateral tubal ligation, and she doesn't take any medications other than lisinopril for her hypertension. She has no allergies. She has three vaginal deliveries in her history, including one forceps delivery. Ah, so an operative delivery. That's a risk factor. 
and her largest baby was 9 pounds 8 ounces or 4.3 kgs, which is pretty large. She recalls having tears with all her deliveries. She denies tobacco, alcohol, or drug use. Family history is negative for inflammatory bowel disease called IBD or colon cancer. Although she has some risk factors for FI, you explain the exact cause is unclear. Of course, she wants to know, could you control her stool now? And why could she control it in the past and she can't at the present time? So what's the physiology of normal defecation? Why could she control her stool before? Continence depends on the anal sphincter, the pelvic floor musculature, stool consistency, rectal capacity and compliance, and neurologic function. Peristaltic colonic contractions move stool into the rectum, and sensory epithelium of the anal canal performs this thing called rectal sampling to determine if the contents are solid, liquid, or gas and tell the brain. If it's socially appropriate, the pelvic muscles relax and straighten the anal rectal angle. The rectosigmoid contractions are initiated and intra-abdominal pressure increases voluntarily. In other words, we contract our belly muscles and the rectal contacts are expelled. When it's socially unacceptable, the anal sphincters contract, the rectum accommodates or is stretchy to hold the contents until a later time. So that's how normal defecation happens. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What anatomic components are responsible for continence? The rectum is a compliant reservoir, like we mentioned, for the stool. And reduced compliance is associated with fecal urgency and incontinence. The puborectalis muscle, which is innervated by the S2 to S5 nerve roots, forms the sling around the anal rectal junction and maintains the anal rectal angle. During rectal filling, sympathetic activation causes contraction of the internal anal sphincter, the IAS, for defecation. The IAS is a continuation of the involuntary circular smooth muscle of the rectum and contributes about 85% of the resting anal sphincter pressure. The external anal sphincter, or the EAS, is a striated muscle innervated by the S4 nerve root via the inferior rectal nerve, and this surrounds the IAS down to the anal verge. The EAS's voluntary contraction provides the remainder of the resting pressure. The complexity and interdependence of all these mechanisms explains why patients kind of lose continence over time as opposed to all at once, and why any patient can develop incontinence years or decades after an injury or an inciting event. So the anatomy of the anal sphincter is pretty complex, and that's why we actually call it the anal sphincter complex. And the pictures that I'm going to depict for you in this podcast that appear in the book are pictures of the anal rectal angle, which usually is a pretty open angle, something like 125, 130 degrees that sits when uh, defecating. Now, when you're at rest or not defecating, the puborectalis muscle, this sling that goes like a slingshot from the pubic bone back along the back of the rectum and back to the pubic bone, will cause the anal rectal angle to close or be 75 to 90 degrees. So it makes it much harder for stool to go around that angle when it's not in a socially appropriate situation where the puborectalis muscle has voluntarily relaxed. Also keep in mind the two different components of the anal sphincter complex include the internal anal sphincter, which is uh, from the anal rectal angle 
down to just above the external anal sphincter. And the external anal sphincter, which is a little bit more distally, just one to two centimeters uh, inside the anal opening. The external anal sphincter at its top, or cephalad, is contiguous with the levator plate. Uh, so there is this interconnectedness between the voluntary pelvic floor muscles and the external anal sphincter, or the sphincter complex. The external anal sphincter also has a deep, or mocephalad, a superficial, or middle, and a subcutaneous component. The subcutaneous component being right under the skin at the anal opening. So what physical exam findings are you going to find when you're evaluating for FI and what's important to evaluate? The physical exam really should focus in on the abdomen and the pelvis. The external genitalia and anus may show signs of prior obstetric injury as well as hemorrhoids, rectal prolapse or the rectum coming out or through the anal opening, skin irritation around the anus and scarring from prior obstetric trauma. The bulbocavernosus and anal wing reflexes verify S2 to S4 neurologic function. Just for your reference, the bulbocavernosus reflexes is the muscles that frame the vagina contracting or twitching after they're stretched out or when the skin on the vulva is stimulated. The anal wink reflex is when the skin on the vulva or around the clitoris is stimulated, the anus will contract in and close, sort of a wink sensation. A vaginal exam for FI would evaluate the presence of stool in the vagina, something that might indicate fistula, abnormal discharge in the vagina, and vaginal prolapse, especially the back wall of the vagina, which might indicate that the rectum has an anterior pouch bulging toward the vagina. A rectal exam would also be useful with, with a digit to assess for hemorrhoids, rectal prolapse, and anal sphincter strength. So the patient has some vital signs done. She's afebrile with a heart rate of 82 per minute and a blood pressure of 118 over 70 millimeters mercury. Her abdomen is soft and non-tender. She has normal external female genitalia with intact reflexes, so the bulbocavernosus and anal wink are working. The speculum exam shows normal vaginal epithelium. On a rectal exam, you don't feel any masses or other lesions. She has a normal sphincter resting tone, and her rectal squeeze strength is scored 1 out of 5 on a 5-point scale. One is actually the worst score you can get, so it just means a flicker. Five would be extremely strong and can hold it for many seconds. So what studies are necessary for the workup of FI? Unfortunately, there's no specific test to evaluate FI. A thorough history and physical examination are really all that's needed to initiate treatment. If there are any red flag symptoms, however, for colon cancer, that would warrant a referral for a colonoscopy. Occasionally, after a patient sustains an anal sphincter disruption, like a traumatic obstetrical delivery, an endoanal ultrasound could be used to identify an anal sphincter laceration. But this is only merited if it would sort of change treatment. So what are some of these red flag symptoms that I'm mentioning? Red flags for colorectal cancer were things like bloody stools, unexplained weight loss, chronic anemia that warrants further investigation, and possibly a referral to gastroenterology. A significant family history for colon cancer would also be a red flag that would make you want to refer. So let's go back to our patient for a minute. This patient is discouraged because she has, quote, tried a lot of things already. She tried a fiber supplement and kept a food diary in the past. She noticed worsening of her symptoms with spicy and fried food and now avoids them. However, she's still really bothered by her fecal incontinence. So what are other initial treatment options that should be offered to this patient who's done some things on her own? So first-line therapies, some of which she's tried, include dietary changes, pelvic floor exercises, and medication. 
food diaries are really useful to help identify triggers for FI episodes or looser stools, such as greasy or fatty food, spicy food, lactose, gas-producing vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower and beans, and artificial sweeteners. Fiber can help make stool more formed and easier to pass. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, recommends 22 to 28 grams of fiber a day for women. Patients should be educated to increase fiber slowly and drink plenty of water. If they don't increase it slowly, it's going to cause some increased bloating and maybe even diarrhea in the short term. Scheduled toileting can also help improve FI because of better emptying to help avoid accidents. The colon produces mass movements in the morning and after meals, so after breakfast is an ideal time to attempt a bowel movement for these patients. Elevating feet on a step stool while on a toilet can improve rectal emptying by straightening that puborectalis muscle making that anorectal angle less acute, right, to facilitate defecation better. Agents such as loperamide or psyllium fiber can also help decrease FI. This is because they decrease motility and allow you more time to get to the bathroom, sort of like natural constipants. A little basic science and clinical pearl, loperamide acts as an opioid receptor agonist at the colonic smooth muscle and striated muscle of the anal sphincter. It increases transit time, reduces fecal volume, and limits fluid loss caused by loperamide, and those all contribute to FI. However, loperamide can result in constipation. That's not surprising. One study actually demonstrated that psyllium fiber and loperamide are equally effective in FI treatment, so it's reasonable to start either if patients have failed some basic behavioral modifications. So let's go back to our patient. Our patient wants to know if there are easy-to-do therapies beyond what she's already tried. She wants to avoid surgery if possible. Sounds great. So what other non-surgical interventions are available to her for this? So physical therapy, or PT, treats FI by providing support with behavioral changes and strengthening the pelvic floor muscles. Remember, her anal strength was really poor. Many physical therapists who treat FI utilize something called biofeedback. Biofeedback is audio and visual cues to enhance rectal sensation and train the sphincters to improve coordination of anal muscles. The patient has made significant behavioral modifications after you talk to her about this. She increases her fiber and water intake, scheduling toilet, and she went to physical therapy. Her symptoms improved for a while, but she's interested in more permanent options. So what should surgical options for FI be? What are some common surgery options that are available for this patient in particular? So surgical therapies are reserved for patients with refractory FI who have failed conservative treatments like this patient, and success rates really vary. Some surgeries for FI also carry significant risks, so you have to talk to patients about this as well. Sacral neuromodulation, or SNM, is often recommended for patients like this. SNM involves the placement of an electrode into the S3 foramen to stimulate the nerve complex innervating the rectum and the anal sphincter complex. Success rates are as high as 63% at 12 months. Before SNM, most commonly performed surgery for FI was the sphincteroplasty, or plicating or tightening the anal sphincter. That was surgical repair, but success of that was less than 50% at 5 to 10 years for curing FI. So with all the morbidity associated with that procedure, it's no longer undertaken commonly. Let's go back to our patient now that she knows these options. So the patient opts to undergo an implantation of a sacral neuromodulator, and she has great success when she follows up three months later. Hooray. So let's go beyond the pearls a little bit on this important topic. So assessing patients complaining of FI for constipation because they might have overflow of looser fecal material that leaks around the harder is very important. 
So never neglect to optimize patients emptying in addition to other treatments for fecal incontinence if they have FIN constipation that's coexisting. Anal receptive intercourse is a risk factor that contributes to FI in both men and women. So asking about modes of sexual intercourse is important in women with FI. Women with a prior fourth degree laceration or a laceration from obstetrical injury that goes all the way through into the rectal lumen from the vagina often is recommended to be avoided in future deliveries. So expert opinion would say do a repeat vaginal delivery only if she doesn't have current symptoms of fecal incontinence after that injury. It is reasonable to offer a cesarean section if the woman after that fourth degree does have fecal incontinence or fecal issues. Although this is seemingly drastic, patients with FI who have failed multiple treatments do report improved quality of light after an ostomy or diversion of stool. So if people have failed many, many treatments, including surgical, S&M, sphincteroplasty, etc., it is reasonable to offer them an ostomy or diversion of stool as an option. Future treatment options and development of the treatment of FI include injection of stem cells into the anal sphincter muscle and magnetic beads that can alter anal sphincter complex function. So more on that in coming years. So let's do a case summary about this important topic. This is a 63-year-old woman who has accidental stool leakage. She is embarrassed and hesitant to discuss it, but you can carefully discuss her symptoms and risk factors. You do this, and her history and physical is consistent with idiopathic FI. And she attempts lifestyle measures such as fiber, toileting habits, and physical therapy, but has limited success. She's therefore offered a sacroneuromodulator implantation and undergoes this and has notable improvement in her symptoms. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.